For the week of Wednesday, April 18th, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, following Trump's strike on Syria, we talk again with Indivisible's foreign policy manager, Elizabeth Beavers, about the ways this strike is alarming and about how we in Indivisible can be pushing back. We also talk about how the pressure Indivisible members are putting on the Senate to block Mike Pompeo's nomination as Secretary of State is working, and that in fact... This is one of the best things that Congress can do on Syria right now is vote down Mike Pompeo's nomination, because if Pompeo is nominated, we're only going to see more of this recklessness from the administration. Then we talk with the Democratic chair for Washington's 8th Congressional District, Josh Troopin, about the many benefits of becoming a precinct committee officer, or PCO. You are the Democratic Party. You are the ones who will choose how your district is run for the next two years. And we will end this week on our dose of good news. So just a quick note before we begin, uh, during my interview with Elizabeth Beavers that you were about to hear, I had a little bit of microphone trouble. So just giving you a heads up on that. Here's the interview. So last Saturday, Trump ordered a series of missile strikes on the Assad regime in Syria in retaliation for Assad launching chemical weapons attacks on civilians. Joining us to talk about the ramifications of Trump's strike and what Indivisible is encouraging members to do in response is Indivisible's foreign policy manager, Elizabeth Beavers. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming back and joining us again. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. So uh, Trump ordered this strike without authorization of Congress. Now, nearly every president since FDR has ordered some form of military action without congressional approval. And we can talk about why this is so in, in a moment. But first, in your mind, what makes Trump's strike on Syria right now particularly troubling? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, these are definitely um, difficult issues to wrestle with. I think most of us saw the really horrific footage that came out of Syria. The apparent chemical attack is abhorrent, illegal, immoral, evil. Assad is a monster. Um, but the, the problem here was the administration, as you mentioned, did not come to Congress, which um, just to review, you know, both under domestic and international law, an administration um, is not so, you know, domestically, constitutionally, um, unless it is an actual moment of self-defense repelling an imminent attack, the president is supposed to come to Congress from military force, even in a limited strike situation. Um, so there's that. And then under international law, it's a similar standard. Um, and, you know, the U.S. did join with the U.K. and France here. So does that mitigate anything in your mind, the fact that it was done in conjunction with the U.K. and France? No, because, look, building a coalition is not enough to overcome the problems and international law still applies and our own domestic law still applies. And it's for a reason. It's not just because it's a good thing to do. Um, it's because these are really difficult questions and there's a huge risk of making things worse if we don't do them in the right way. And so the two things I really want to drive home here are, one, the president did not come to Congress and seek authorization that he's legally required to get. Uh, and then number two, he also didn't present any sort of argument of why these particular strikes are in any way responsive to that apparent chemical attack, how they in any way deter a future attack, how they help alleviate the suffering of the Syrian people, what this strategy and plan is from here forward. The way it's supposed to work is the administration comes to Congress with that argument, Congress debates and votes. If the administration has made a compelling case they can authorize, if he hasn't, then they don't. And by skipping those steps, this was reckless. 
it ups the risk of retaliation from Iran and Russia. Um, how, you know, how so? And that's something that was mentioned in your blog post on yeah. uh, the Indivisible website. You say that this could lead to retaliations, uh, as you say, from Russia, uh, Iran, Syria, Hezbollah, you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Sure. So, you know, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, Syria has been long been in about eight years of civil war. Um, and there's sort of multiple fronts happening. It's similar to Yemen, which I talked about on your show before, where there's really kind of two wars that are happening simultaneously. Um, there's definitely kind of side wars happening in addition to the two main ones, but there's the, the counterterrorism mission where the U.S. is conducting strikes against ISIS, Al-Qaeda-associated forces. But then there's also a long-ranging civil war where pro-government forces are fighting rebel forces, and that factions off in a number of different ways. But um, Iran and um, Russia and Hezbollah and a number of other actors are um, involved in this proxy war, basically supporting the Assad regime. Mm. Um, So by striking um, against the Assad regime, um, they, we have sort of inserted ourselves potentially into the civil war um, in a way where the forces fighting on the opposite side could retaliate in some way. And already both Russia and Iran have pledged that there will be consequences for the strikes that we've done. Now, does that necessarily mean that we should expect military strikes? At this time, maybe not, but we do have to remember that thousands of U.S. troops are in Syria um, and are stationed throughout the Middle East and are in places where they could certainly be the subject of retaliation by these forces. You know, actually, I just want to stop and say that was uh, an extraordinarily uh, deft encapsulation of what is happening in Syria because it's just such a complicated conflagration. Uh, you know, one of the issues that you mention also in your blog post uh, that is troubling about this is that in this strike, there seems to be a double standard with Trump in terms of his concern for Syrian civilians. Uh, right. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like I said, we if you're a human being and you have a heart, then, you know, the natural inclination after seeing the terrible, terrible footage from Syria is, okay, let's do something. What can we do about this? We want to strike back. That's human nature. I felt it. Look, I'm <laughs> I'm a long-ranging, like, progressive foreign policy advocate, and immediately I was like, oh, let's do something. That's that's the gut reaction. Um, but, but, you know, the sense is that Trump has kind of, um, uh, in, in not a meaningful way, exploited that or used it as an excuse to conduct a strike in a way that's really more about geopolitics than it is about the humanitarian situation in Syria. It's more of an effort to kind of look tough and um, assert ourselves in the region and kind of flex with Russia a little bit. Um, there, it, it, Certainly the president has a number of domestic legal scandals that are haunting him that this helps distract from. But to the question of that humanitarian visceral response that we feel for the people of Syria, um, Trump's stated compassion for the people of Syria really doesn't square with the fact that, first of all, look, Trump did a strike like this last year um, after an apparent chemical attack, and Assad has done multiple chemical attacks since then, and Trump didn't respond. So all of a sudden, he's responding now. And secondly, the United States has admitted 11 refugees from Syria this year. Only 11, right. Exactly. And Trump is, you know, almost as we speak, next week he's got a big court date coming up, continuing to argue heavily in the courts to maintain his bigoted Muslim ban that 
um, it helps bar refugees and others from Syria and other places. So it really doesn't square with the stated compassion that Trump is asserting on behalf of the Syrian people. You know, I do because you're an expert in foreign policy, I do want to talk about the way things are ultimately supposed to work, because you've touched on this a little bit uh, when it comes to the executive branch and military action. So um, the Constitution in Article one, Section eight prescribes that Congress has the sole power to, quote, declare war and grant letters of mark and reprisal. Uh, And as I said, the last president to officially declare a war with approval of Congress was FDR in 1941. We've obviously had a lot of military engagements since then. The War Powers Act in 1973 after Vietnam was supposed to check this, but it has not effectively. Then after 9-11, Congress signed the Authorization to Use Military Force or the AUMF. This is the law that uh, is being used by uh, it was used by Bush. It was used by Obama. Now it's being used by Trump in order to justify the actions that uh, they've undertaken militarily. Can you just talk briefly about what the AUMF is and help us understand yeah. what it does? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just flag for everyone: we're coming out with a new explainer on the AUMF itself here in a couple of days. So keep oh, an tremendous. eye out. For okay, that. great timing. Yeah. Good. So I I love that you're asking about this. Yeah. So the authorization for the use of military force, um, or the AUMF, was passed just a few days after 9/11. It was almost unanimous. Only one member of Congress. Barbara Lee of California voted against it at the time, Um, and it was one sentence. It basically says the president is authorized to use all force that he deems necessary and appropriate against those who were participated in 9-11 or had some role in assisting or harboring or it basically it carves out this kind of loophole that's big enough to drive a truck through. Um, And that that one sentence, it doesn't have geographic boundaries. It didn't have an expiration date. It didn't even define really who the enemy or the objective is. Um, And so here we are 17 years later. Yeah, almost 17 years later um, with the same authorization that's on the books. And it has dramatically altered the course of constitutional war powers and that sort of delicate dance between the executive and legislative branch. Um, So, you know, what's kind of happened is it's, it's gotten us into this stalemate where, um, as you mentioned, um, there hasn't been an official declaration of war in a very long time, but um, Congress now sort of authorizes force, which accomplishes the same effect of, of asserting its um, Article One authority to, to decide when and where we go to war. But because this really broad AUMF is on the books, um, it's been used now by three administrations in a row um, to continuously expand military operations. Obviously, initially, we all remember Afghanistan and beyond the war on terror. Um, but it was also used to justify the human rights abuses that came along with that from um, indefinite detention without charge or trial in Guantanamo to the torture of detainees to the use of surveillance domestically without a warrant. All of those things, um, the Bush administration asserted that that one little sentence of the AUMF let them do. And then um, President Obama also was guilty of using it to justify his drone wars and expanding those without getting uh, additional authorization from Congress. Um, And then actually the Obama administration interpreted it to also allow for um, force against ISIS, which is was very controversial because ISIS didn't exist when that AUMF was written. Um, so it's, you know, it has it gotten us to the stalemate where Congress doesn't really have to take these controversial war votes and the president doesn't really have to ask for permission. 
Um, so neither branch of government is very invested in overturning this thing. Well, so then where do we stand now ultimately? Um, a president, can a president legally order military action under the AUMF? How is the Trump administration specifically interpreting this? Yeah. So, you know, um, as one might imagine, there's a lot of secrecy happening with this administration and how they interpret the AUMF and what they think it covers and what they've used it to cover. Um, But based on what we do know, there is a a continuation um, that has occurred where they are still using it to justify a number of operations across the world. Um, The one thing that does (laughs) exist as a limiting factor, and I hesitate to even use that term, um, is that the original AOMF does say that it's supposed to be tied to those who had something to do with 9-11. So each administration so far has had to make some kind of legal argument about why the group that they're targeting or whatever it is that they're doing has something to do with those who had uh, a role in 9-11. So usually the way that's gone is, for example, on the ISIS question, President Obama basically said um, Al-Qaeda existed. They organized what happened on 9-11. And then ISIS came to existence, and even though now they are in in conflict with Al-Qaeda and they are on opposite sides of a conflict, they were basically birthed from the legacy of Al-Qaeda. Therefore, that's the nexus we need to get us to the AUMF. That's a pretty strained legal argument, but it is an argument. Um, The president is not authorized to just launch any military force for any reason. Um, The president does at least have to justify it um, under the language of the AOMF. But the problem is that only really matters if Congress demands it. And for a very long time, Congress has not demanded it and there's been no consequences. And we do want to push Congress in that direction. And I'm just before we proceed to that, I'm going to ask what is a very, very dark question. But oh, no. uh, well, talk about a president's current power to call a nuclear strike, because I think that's what a lot of people yeah. are very concerned about with this administration uh, having a blank check. Nuclear strikes are not necessarily covered under the AUMF, or are they? No, you're exactly right. Um, So um, nuclear weapons are a little bit of a different thing. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize the president has almost unchecked nuclear first use authority. Um, There is a bill in Congress that we really like. There's one on the Senate side sponsored by Senator Markey on the House side by by Congressman Ted Lieu um, that would take away um, the unilateral ability to launch a first strike nuclear attack. Where does that bill Um, stand now? Yeah. So that bill, unfortunately, is kind of not going anywhere. Um, It has been collecting co-sponsorship. And we do have um, a resource on both that and the greater threat of Trump's, you know, nuclear warmongering, especially with North Korea, that lists the bills out if anybody wants to look at that. But um, they they're stalled. And the the unfortunate truth, which we say all the time, I know, is that we don't have agenda setting power in this Congress. So unless congressional leadership wants to move something forward, it doesn't go forward. But it is a really good way for members of Congress to go on the record and put their name, put their co-sponsorship on a bill and say that they endorse it and say that that's what they think should happen once we do have agenda setting power. Well, let's circle back to the strikes in Syria and let's talk directly now about what Indivisible is asking members to do in response to these strikes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we did put up a resource about Trump's escalation in Syria, and we included an entire list of things that Congress could do 
Um, any one of those would be better than one-off strategy-free unauthorized missile strikes. Um, there, and as I'm listing this, this isn't necessarily um, uh, like a, a centralized ask for Congress, but these are examples of things Congress could do here. They can continue to publicly support the ongoing investigation by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. This is the international organization that's tasked with investigating the apparent chemical strike, which that investigation is has kind of just launched um, and needs some support. And unfortunately, you know, these strikes went ahead uh, in the absence of analysis from um, OPCW. But um, that's one thing they can do. Um, Congress can forcefully insist on its sole authority to authorize military force. And we've talked about um, that. Yeah, we've talked about that. Yeah, um, they can demand Trump. You have to come to Congress before any further strikes in Syria. They can vote no on any authorization for further force in Syria since Trump hasn't demonstrated any sort of plan or strategy. Um, they can denounce Trump's bigoted Muslim and refugee bans that are trapping people in Syria. Um, they can call on the administration to resettle more refugees. They can call on the administration not to lead by military force, but by engaging international partners to seek a diplomatic and political solution. And of course, they can hold hearings, not just on the use of force in Syria, but globally, and understanding how Trump's own global war operations right now are racking up quite the civilian body count. Um, so there's a, like, I do want to say, so there's a few things Congress can do, but honestly, the one thing, and this is what the call script really focuses on, mm. the best thing they can do is speak out right now. Um, the best thing they can do is really forcefully say those same two points we talked about at the beginning, which is A, these strikes were not legal, and B, these strikes were bad policy. There was no strategy advanced to explain how this responds to the chemical attacks or where we go moving forward. So Congress can insist on that. And I would encourage people to check out the call script, and I will be posting that on the SoundCloud page and also right. at indivisiblepodcast.org. Uh, you know, before we go, a potentially bit of good news. So when we talked the first time, we spoke about the nomination of CIA Director Mike Pompeo for Secretary yeah. of State, um, and you urged members to call their members of Congress and oppose that. And it looks like pressure from constituents is having an impact. Where does his nomination stand right now? Absolutely. This is very good news. And to tell you the truth, this is one of the best things that uh, Congress can do on Syria right now is uh, vote down Mike Pompeo's nomination, because if Pompeo is nominated, we're only going to see more of this recklessness from the administration. Um, but obviously, people are making the calls because um, the it's it's been like dominoes falling in the last 24 hours. One after the other, senators are coming forward and stating their opposition um, to this nomination. And so right now, um, it's looking like uh, next week, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is going to take up his nomination first. Um, it looks like he's not going to make it through committee. That would be the first time that happened since 1925, yes. I understand. Yes, um, yes exactly. Because uh, the way the committee is lined up, uh, there's a, a one Republican majority and Rand Paul is on that committee. And he is opposed to this nomination. So if all the Democrats hold together, this nominee is going down. And so far, as of the time I'm speaking to you, this might be different by the time people are hearing it. But the only Democrat in the committee who hasn't publicly voiced their opposition is Senator Coons. And uh, he voted against Pompeo last year for CIA. So he's expected to vote the right way. So it looks like this nomination is going down in committee. Well, so... 
it's my understanding that, and this would be extraordinarily rare, but uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell could still bring up the nomination on the floor of the Senate, mm-hmm. even if it doesn't make it through Senate Foreign Relations Committee. But Pompeo would need the support of at least one Democratic senator there. How is that exactly. looking? Yeah, exactly. So, um most likely, I think McConnell will bring him to the floor, which I think he should be embarrassed by that this guy can't even make it through the committee of jurisdiction. I don't and yet think Mitch McConnell it. has the capacity <laughs> to get embarrassed. <laughs> which is why we should expect that he will do this and he will nonetheless bring Pompeo's vote to the Senate floor, which means every senator has to weigh in. Um, as you mentioned, the setup is exactly the same. Um, Pompeo cannot pass without Democratic support. So this is where I'm a little less optimistic because even though um, one by one Democrats are coming out, we still haven't heard from some of the red state Democrats like Doug Jones or Claire McCaskill. You tweeted um, about Doug Jones actually this yeah. morning. What What's the yeah. latest on him? Yeah, he. we don't have a public statement from him yet. Um, a, a lot of the public reporting seems to suggest that a lot of the red state Democrats like Manchin, Donnelly, McCaskill, uh, Jones, uh, some of the others are maybe uh, consulting with one another and are um, kind of looking. I think nobody wants to be the one person. They're looking <laughs> to vote as a block, basically. Is what I, I, probably they're going to vote as a block. Um, They bare minimum will help influence one another. So we really need them to start speaking out ASAP. Um, Would you mind if I plug the 800 number we've set up to patch people through if they're in those states? I absolutely would not. Please do. Okay, great. So we have set up um, a 1-800 number. It's toll free. It's 1-855-980-2350. Again, that's 1-855-980. Nine eight zero two three five zero. If you live in Alabama, West Virginia, Missouri, Indiana, if you in Virginia, honestly, Mark Warner could use some support. Um, if if you live in an area where you have a senator, a Democratic senator who has not yet announced their opposition to the Pompeo nomination, uh, give them a call. I'm hearing from from offices that they're getting quite a few calls and they're paying attention to them and that's helping them make their decision. But I should just mention one last thing, and this is a, a, a development that uh, was revealed on Tuesday. Mike Pompeo, in his capacity, still as CIA director, uh, evidently set up a potential meeting between yeah. Trump and Kim Jong-un. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are here and if you think that that changes the calculus on his nomination in any way. It certainly could. My sense, and this is the sense of a lot of people, is that it's very strange timing that this story got leaked. I mean, this is probably a classified CIA mission that got leaked by the administration suddenly, right, as one by one Democrats are coming out and announcing their opposition. And it becomes increasingly apparent that Pompeo is probably not going to make it through committee. Um, So it sounded like an act of desperation. And I think what they were trying to do is um, counter this idea that Mike Pompeo is a warmonger and try to show him as this like skillful diplomat that is handling the relationship with Kim Jong-un and North Korea. Um, There's a few concerns here. One is a lack of candor. Um, Why wasn't this disclosed to senators who are vetting him? 
um, look, like we're in favor of diplomacy with North Korea. That's not a bad thing. But there's some big questions that this opens up. It, uh, I think, is very insulting to a lot of members of Congress who didn't have that disclosed as they were vetting Pompeo. And, you know, also, um, I, I there's a chance that they could look at that and say, hey, maybe maybe he can be trusted to be a diplomat. But look, everything we know about Pompeo from his records suggests otherwise, and this really should not deter senators from opposing him. Well, the bottom line here is for members that phone calls and pressure absolutely makes a difference. Yes. So so that's the that's the good news. And, you know, whenever we talk, I, I like to end on a uh, on a positive note, because, I of course, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the world of foreign policy is a dark, dark place. But yes. look, I want to thank you so much for joining us again and actually bringing a great deal of clarity to what are extraordinarily complex subjects. So Elizabeth Beavers, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks to you, Stefan. And I'm really happy to thank the Indivisible Movement, who I have seen nothing but um, unanimity and support for countering the Trump's foreign policy agenda, especially in these difficult times. So everybody's doing great work. So if you have ever thought about becoming a precinct committee officer or PCO, there are a number of compelling reasons to do it. Voter turnout is, of course, key in winning elections, and you can help drive that in your neighborhood. And you can also get to play a significant role in determining the direction of your party. How, I hear you asking, uh, and you may also be asking exactly what a PCO is. And so here to break down all of this is Josh Troopin. Josh is the Democratic chair for Washington's 8th Congressional District. He is a frequent guest on our show. And so hello again, Josh. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing fine today. So, you know, I figure let's just start with the basics. Tell us what a PCO does specifically regarding interaction with voters. Okay, so a PCO, PCO stands for Precinct Committee Officer. And there are about 7,300 precincts across the state of Washington. And each one has one PCO who's a Democrat and one who's a Republican. And they are basically in charge of their precinct, which might be about 750 people or 1,000 people, depending on the size of the precinct. Um, Their job is to represent the precinct within the Democratic Party. And let's forget the Republicans for a sure. while. Sure, yeah, let's, uh, let's do that. Okay. <laughs> um, so the PCO is the membership of the Democratic Party in the state of Washington. And they basically own their precinct. So they can set up voter contact or registrations or anything that they think will help improve turnout for Democrats in their precinct. So is there a lot of door knocking involved? You Do PCOs generally go around and meet people within their precinct and establish a relationship? Um, PCOs can do door knocking. Uh, there are a lot of canvases that the local and state parties host every weekend where they might descend on your particular area so that you have door knocking buddies. Gotcha. Go around, just listen and then move on to actually explaining why you should vote for the Democrats on the ballot. All right. So say I want to be a PCO. How do I go about getting the job? So PCO is actually a job that is defined in Washington state law, and it is an elected position. So the 
only way to become an elected PCO, which is important, is to actually file to run for your precinct's PCO. And you have to do that during the May 14th to 18th filing week. Okay. And you can go to, let me get the link in, and we can talk about that some more later, mm-hmm. file4pco.com. Okay. And that will give you a lot of information. All right, good. Well, we'll make sure that we have that on the SoundCloud page as well as at indivisiblepodcast.org. Now, once you have filed, you are then up for election in the August primary, right? If you are the only person to file from your precinct, then you are basically chosen by acclamation. And then you become the PCO for your district for the next two years. If there are two or more people then you both appear on all the August primary ballots in your precinct. And it's actually an election. So you can go talk to people, convince them to vote for you. And then in August, you're chosen so that after the August primaries, we have a list of all of the elected across the state, basically. And their term starts on December 1st, of the even number year after the general election is over. Which is where we are heading this year. So just to be very clear, it is one PCO per precinct of the 7,300 precincts. It is one PCO maximum Maximum. per precinct. Yes. Okay. And a lot of precincts do not have an elected PCO, and it is a great way to get in on the ground floor to have a voice in the future of the Democratic Party. Well, let's talk about how that works, because that was what I was going to get into next, because another thing that people may not be aware of is the fact that the state Democratic Party reorganizes itself every two years on the, at, at the end of the even year. Uh, and PCOs have a very significant role to play in that. So uh, we can talk about that in a second. But first, let's start with reorganization. What specifically happens during and we can shorten it to what's referred to as a reorg? What happens during a reorg? Okay, so as of December 1st, all the organizations across the state basically dissolve. So there is no King County Executive Board. There's no 5th Legislative District Executive Board. The only people in the Democratic Party are all the elected PCOs. And that includes the people who run the state party all the way to the top, right? That's correct. The chair's term expires at the end of the election season. So starting December 1st, it becomes reorg season for about 45 days through the middle of January. And it starts for us at the King County level. So usually the first weekend after December 1st, all of the elected PCOs are invited to vote for all of the positions on the King County Democrats board. And what are those positions? Just run a few of those down for us. That includes chair, uh, first vice chair, second vice chair, depending on your organization, secretary, treasurer, uh, young Democrats representative. Um, For the legislative districts, you also vote for representatives to the King County Committee. And for each county and each legislative district, you choose two representatives to the state party. And we'll get to them in in just a second. But I I want to stop here for just a second and 
and, and just kind of put a yellow highlighter on the fact that the PCOs are really the only ones who get to vote here because, as you say, they're the only elected members of the party at that point. So uh, we talked about the distinction earlier between uh, PCOs who may have been appointed and PCOs who are elected. PCOs who have been officially elected are the only ones who get to vote in this reorganization process, correct? Right. And the reason being because any districts that are open after the PCO elections, only the chair of the district can appoint a PCO. So you do not have a chair of the district to appoint anyone until the elected PCOs have selected the chair. Okay. And and so all of these executive board positions, the people who are running, do they lobby the, the PCOs for their vote and support? Uh, especially for the larger reorganizations like King County, you will probably hear from a couple of candidates for chair. Um, the people will collect statements from them. Um, in late November of 2016, we actually had a get to know the candidates forum where you could hear from people who were hoping to run for the various vice chairs and chair positions. So it, it will be a competitive race in many cases. Some people even do mailings out to all the PCOs hmm. because that's all public information, everyone's address. Okay. And so, as we said, the PCOs are elected as part of the August primary. And then yes. the first week in December, the party dissolves. So when does this vote happen? So the first ones will happen in the beginning of December. And basically, you need King County to go first because King County will then kick off the legislative district votes over the next few weeks. Okay. And those are those are generally um, scheduled for the next available regular meeting slot. Okay, so now this is what happens at the county and the district level. So what right. about all the way up to the state level, the state leadership? You, you alluded to this earlier, but let's come back to it. Who are the people specifically who vote to run the state party? So after we've had 39 counties and 49 legislative districts have their reorg meetings, we've had 88 reorg meetings across the state. Each of those districts and counties chooses two state committee members not of the same gender. So we will have a group of 176 people who make up the state committee. So you have 176 people if all the reorgs go okay. And generally the last weekend of January, we convene the state committee meeting in Olympia. And at that point, the 176 members vote for the executive board of the state party, the state chair, who right now is Tina Pabodowski, mm -hmm. vice chairs, treasurer, and secretary. And I would imagine that there's probably some heavy lobbying going on for the people who are trying to get those positions, yes, to the delegates? It, it depends on the position. Uh, the state chair is actually a paid position, whereas pretty much every other position is a volunteer position. So the distinction there being? Um, actually, the only real distinction is that we realized that the state party chair is essentially a full-time job that is comparable to a mid-size organization 
fundraising CEO, and we treat them as such. Got it. Okay. So let's uh, let's let's just kind of recap a couple of things here. If somebody wants to run the filing deadline, as you mentioned, uh, right. opens on May 14th and closes on May 18th, so exactly one month away from the closing deadline as of the airing of this show on April 18th. So let's just sum up uh, very briefly. What in your mind are some of the biggest benefits of being a PCL? So the two biggest benefits are, one, you are the Democratic Party. You are the ones who will choose how your district is run for the next two years. And another benefit that not as many people are aware of is that for a state legislator, if they step down during their term, the PCOs from their district and party get to choose their replacement. So for instance, Andy Hill from the 45th LD passed away before his time at the end of 2016. And in order to fill his term, the Republican PCOs in the 45th chose Dino Rossi to replace him. Right. So that's so that's another benefit of being a PCO. And yep. so so ultimately, yeah, in addition to being uh, basically on the front lines of driving voter turnout, which, as we know, is key to winning elections, uh, you actually have a great deal of say so in terms of uh, the people who are going to lead your party. Right. Right. And you do not technically you don't have to be a PCO to do all of this. But in order to get some of the benefits, you do need to be a PCO. And you can still help driving turnout and so on as a volunteer. Sure, of course. Of course. Okay. So uh, if people are kind of hooked in, if they, uh, if, if they want to learn more about this, uh, you mentioned the website. But let's, uh, let's mention it one more time. Uh, that would be fileforpco.com. Excellent. Well, Josh, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to explain all of that to us. It's uh, not a straightforward or easy matter. So uh, thank you for making it clear for us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And everyone should file for PCO out of your precinct. And next, for good measure, let us end this week on a dose of good news. You want to? Let's do it. So we will kick it off with House Speaker Paul Ryan's announcement that he will not be seeking re-election to Congress in November. It is hard to overemphasize how significant this is in terms of showing how little confidence the Republican Party has about their chances of retaining control of the House in November. Uh, Though, as we discussed last week with DNC Deputy Chair Keith Ellison, it is important not to get overconfident here. But I will point out that Ryan wasn't even the only GOP member of Congress to announce his retirement on that same day. Florida Congressman Dennis Ross also said that he won't be back. So this brings the total of GOP retirements or resignations to 34. And with Ryan leaving, we can certainly expect that number to go even higher. And it may be a coincidence, but according to a recently released Reuters Ipsos poll, between the years 2016 and 2018, there has been a marked shift in older white college-educated voters from Republican to Democrat to the tune of 12 points. And that means that Democrats now have a two-point advantage going into November. 2016 to 2018, what uh, 
What happened during that time? Hmm. Well, whatever it was, according to a Washington Post-Kaiser family poll, it was enough to drive one-fifth of all Americans to participate in a march or rally over the last two years. And of those people, 19% said that they had never participated in anything like that before. And the kicker is a full third of the people surveyed say that they are planning on volunteering for a congressional campaign this fall. And finally, as you have no doubt heard during the court appearance of Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, Cohen was compelled by the judge to name his previously unnamed third client. And that client is Sean Hannity. Is this necessarily good news? It's hard to say. But did it make me laugh out loud when I heard it? Yes. Yes, it did. So it stays. And there you go. That'll do it, gang, for this week's Dose of Good News. And that'll also do it for this week's show. Hey, if you like what you hear, kindly give us a rating on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever it is that you listen. That would be awesome of you. You can also get more information about the show at indivisiblepodcast.org, and you can subscribe there as well. The email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and we are on Twitter at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Elizabeth Beavers and Josh Trubin. Special thanks goes out to Emily Phelps, And of course, my thanks as always to you for listening and we'll see you guys next time. Bye.